Jesus and his resurrection isn't very significant. <laughs> it's not going to have any real lasting impact in your life. If you believe that the resurrection of Jesus is the greatest thing that has ever happened in all of human history, and you believe that, then we have to ask ourselves the challenging question of, do I live my life that way? Like this is the most important thing that's ever happened in human history. Or is it just something to add on to my busy life, my busy schedule, my busy workload, all of the responsibilities that I have in this world? And this is why I think it's just such an important question to ask. What does Easter mean to you? Honestly, Easter took on a, a new meaning to me personally this morning. I mean, I've shared with you before, I've been on kind of this wellness journey where I'm trying to, I'm getting a little older, so I'm trying to take better care of myself. So this morning, I had keto chocolate. What a colossal waste of money. <laughs> keto chocolate. I appreciate the sentiment, babe. I really do. But my goodness is disgusting. It's, just, it's not real chocolate. And so this morning, Easter was very, very different in my heart. <laughs> okay? <laughs> because of this bag of keto chocolate, I still literally have the aftertaste in my mouth of whatever this thing was. <laughs> Okay, now we can joke and we can laugh at my expense of trying to take better care of myself in my older age. But again, what we view, how we view this day should impact us, should change how we live our lives. It's interesting, again, as I was prepping this message and I kind of wrote this introduction and to get us all hyped up and get us excited that we're here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and it's all, we're here to celebrate the resurrection. And then literally I was sitting at home in my comfy chair writing this message with my laptop on my lap and I'm like, wait a minute, I should be doing this every day. Right? The resurrection of Jesus is not just this one Sunday a year party. It's an everyday party. It's an everyday lifestyle. It's an everyday celebration. Not just this once a year type of thing that we kind of turn it into. So we turn Easter into the day where we celebrate and wear our nice clothing and have parties and invite all the family over. But then the rest of the week, we live like God is still dead. Or we live like it still all depends on me to solve all of my problems. Or it all depends on me to deal with the struggles of this life. And so I want us to look at the Easter story from Luke's gospel. If you have a Bible, we're going to be reading from Luke 24 to look at the resurrection of Jesus. But before I read the resurrection, just in case some of you might be joining us today and you're not this familiar, this might be new to you. And I never want to take that for granted that this story is new. 
Because we do. We live in a culture today. We live in a world today that not everybody knows who Jesus is. Not everybody knows the basic stories of Jesus's ministry and life. And if that's you today, God bless you. And we hope that you're encouraged today. You're totally welcome here, wherever you are in your faith journey. Right? Luke 24 is kind of the looks like the end of the story because we're getting close. Like there's literally only like one page left after, you know, Luke's gospel. So it's like we're in the conclusion. And again, we can treat this resurrection story like it's a conclusion instead of actually treating it like what it really is. It's the introduction. It's the beginning of something amazing. So 2,000 years ago, right, outside the city of Jerusalem, there was a 33-year-old man from the town of Nazareth, and he was arrested in the middle of the night. And people kind of doubt whether or not that man actually existed. There's movements today and studies today that want to just disprove the existence that this Jesus of Nazareth even lived. And I get it that if you can prove that, then it kind of debunks everything else, right? The problem is, is science, and there's a science called, called textual criticism that's actually used to study ancient documents, and any historian worth their salt would not deny his existence. There's too much evidence to the existence that this man lived, There's also too much evidence that points to this man's arrest. Now, he was arrested in a very, very religious context. He grew up in this ancient Israel where there were these religious leaders that had come to power that were very, 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 very strict. Maybe some of you here today, you were raised in a very, very strict religious environment. (laughs) where there were a lot of rules and a lot of regulations and a whole lot of things that you were not allowed to do. One of my best friends uh, told me a story once how he grew up. And him and his family used to have this beautiful cottage by the lake. It was this huge cottage. There were eight kids in the family, and they would all go to this cottage on the weekend. And literally on Sunday morning, they would go off to church, and they would come home to this beautiful lakefront property And the children weren't allowed to play. You weren't allowed to go swimming. You weren't allowed to play badminton. You weren't allowed to play tennis. You literally had to sit there until the sun went down as small children and just read your Bible. Can you imagine having eight children locked in a house with a lake right there? Like parents, you could go, go swimming and leave me alone, right? No, they locked these kids up in a room. A lot of people grow up in very, very strict religious environments. Well, the religious environment that maybe you grew up in is nothing, nothing compared to the strict religious environment of Jesus's day. You know how I know that? Because I guarantee no one who grew up in a strict religious environment were forced to memorize all of this. (laughs) I wasn't. I don't know anybody else who was. We'll have to start in Genesis, Leviticus, you know, and just go through this Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Joshua. That's how we memorize these things. We sing the song, okay? Memorized, very, very strict. 
And then you had these two religious groups, these Pharisees and these Sadducees, basically debating amongst themselves who's the holiest, who's the more righteous. And they would have all of these rules, 613 of them. And they would look down on their own people. The people that they were put in place to build them up, to help draw them closer to God by their position of religious authority. And instead, they look down on them. Thank you, Lord, for not making me like this person. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that person. And so you got this different class system happening here based solely on how well, not how close you were to God, but how pious and how religious you were in the sight of other people. And then Jesus shows up into that scene and he teaches them that these religious leaders are blind. They might know their Torah by heart. They might know all the history of Israel. They might be able to quote all of the prophets and all of the Psalms and all of the wisdom literature, but they're blind and they're leading people astray. How popular would that make him? Not very popular. (laughs) You know, and what's funny is human nature has not changed all that much. We don't like when the crowd thinks one way and one person rises up with a different opinion. (laughs) We kind of try to squash that person down pretty quick. (laughs) We just don't like that. They're bucking the system. They're trying to change too much. They're too out of the box. Just conform. We, have, we want everyone to be an individual, but just look like all of us. It's the dumbest thing about our culture today. We're all individuals, but look the same and think the same. <laughs> we wonder why there's so much tension. And then Jesus is dealing with these religious leaders that want him gone. He's disrupting the niceness of their way of life. (laughs) That he's teaching them in a way with an authority that they don't have. He's doing miracles that they are incapable of doing. He's setting, he's giving sight to the blind. He's helping the lame to walk. He's curing lepers. And then he goes around and then he starts saying something. And this is why they arrested him. And this is ultimately why they killed him. It's because he said, I forgive your sin. Again, there's this movement that wants to say Jesus never declared himself to be God. That Jesus is just a nice guy. He's just a good religious leader. He's just a nice rabbi. He's, he's a good spiritual example to follow. And again, if people want to think that way, you can. But it's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I forgive your sin. And the Jewish people are like, "Um, no, nobody can do that except God. No human being, no prophet, no teacher, no king, no priest can declare sin forgiven, forgiven. But Jesus did. And then once he started talking that way, they're like, we got to get rid of this guy. We have to get rid of him for blasphemy, for calling himself God. 
And so he's arrested in the middle of the night, betrayed by one of his closest followers. He's brought before the judges of his religious order that are trying to make accusations against him. The witnesses literally have to lie about him and twist his words in order to have a conviction against him. And because Israel was an occupied nation by the Romans, they weren't allowed to execute people. So they had to go to the Romans to say, well, here's a criminal. We've tried him according to our laws. Could you now kill him for us? They're trying to keep their hands clean. It's religious holidays. Kind of executing people on religious holidays is kind of frowned upon. We still frown upon that on Easter in our families. Don't execute any family members over the holidays. Okay, it's just not a good sign. Right? They don't want to do this. And then the Roman officers in charge of that entire region going, this guy, there's nothing wrong. But because the mob mentality is rising up, they go, fine, we'll do it. And they wash their hands of the blood of Jesus. And he's nailed to a cross. And he breathes his last. And he dies. And in order to prove his death, a Roman officer, a Roman centurion, Roman soldier takes a spear and pierces his side. And blood and water comes out. Natural part of human death. He's taken off of this cross and he's put into a tomb that doesn't belong to him. Put into a rich man's tomb. And then after the Sabbath, women show up. To kind of do the religious part of what you do when people pass away back in those days. And so that's where we're at in this story. A lot of tension, a lot of tradition, a lot of messiness that could possibly happen here. And there's this confusion on who this man in this tomb is. Is he just another prophet, king? Or priest? Or is he truly who he says he was? The one who was able to forgive sin. Truly the I am. Yahweh God. And so let's, that's where we're at in the story. And again, in Luke 24, looks like the conclusion. But it's not a conclusion. It's the introduction to something new. It's the introduction to something amazing. It's the introduction to something that is completely and totally life-changing. So let's read this. Luke chapter 24 and read starting in verse 1. It says, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The son of man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. And then they remembered his words. 
When they came back from the tomb, they told all of these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. So Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. Again, so we have this picture of this group of women showing up at this temple. And the detail of that story shouldn't be lost on us either. Because again, in the culture of this day, the testimony of these women didn't mean anything. The testimony of women could not be used in a court of law. And yet God is saying the words of these women is about to change the world. (laughs) That their testimony and their story and their experience matters. See, God is a God who flips everything about culture upside down. Gender roles, racism, all of these things that we as humans in our sinfulness and honestly in our stupidity keep wrestling with. See, God flips this over on its head because it's not a conclusion. It's an introduction. Peter shows up here at the tomb and finds this empty tomb. The tomb is empty. Jesus is risen. See, we talk on Good Friday when Jesus says the words, it is finished on the cross. What is finished? Well, what is finished is the work that Jesus had to do to pay for sin. Because the Bible teaches us that sin has to be paid for. It just can't be ignored. I know sometimes I like to just ignore sin, especially when it's mine. I really love it when you ignore my sin. Makes my life a lot easier if no one would call me out on it. Right? But what is finished is this work that God had to do to pay for sin. So Jesus says it's finished. And we saw on Friday that the veil that's blocking the full presence of the glory of God, this curtain, which is 60 feet by 30 feet by four inches thick, is torn in half. And the full presence of God is now available to everybody, not just the people of Israel. Everybody, any color, any country, any gender, right? That's what happens Good Friday. What Easter does, it affirms it, that this is true. Because he's not just a dead prophet, a dead king, or a dead religious leader. His resurrection proves he's God. Power over sin, power over death, power over our spiritual enemy. So they worship a risen king. That's why partying and celebrating and rejoicing in the resurrection shouldn't just be a one day a year thing. It's an every Sunday thing. It's an everyday thing that my sin that kept me separated from God has been dealt with. My shortcomings that kind of wreck relationships between us as people 
have been forgiven because of Jesus. But not only am I made right with God and forgiven of these transgressions, I'm also given God's spirit that his power dwells among his church to receive power over the sin in our lives so that we can grow and mature and step into the life that God calls us to so that we can work on our messy human relationships and be reconciled to one another so that we can be used by God to bring a message of hope and of love to a lost and hurting and broken world that is trying to find life in a tomb. The world that you and I are living in right now are desperately trying to find life. They're desperately trying to find meaning. Maybe that meaning is in sexual identity. Maybe that meaning is in comfort. Maybe that meaning is in wealth and prosperity. They're desperately trying to find things that will bring them life. And they're searching for those things in a tomb that will lead to death. Because those things will not lead to life. I joke about this all this time because, you know, like I like things. I have a lot of things. I, I'm a collector of things. Like I'm a nerd. I like to collect comic books and Star Wars figures. And I, you come and visit me in my house and you look and you see how deep the rabbit hole goes. If you ever come in to see my geek corner, you're like, what is wrong with this guy? I know I've got stuff. I'm working on it. Okay. I like my things, but none of those things are ever going to bring me life. They're all going to end up at the Goodwill or in a dump or in Cameron's basement when he'll have to deal with it all one day. I owe you $5, Cameron. Okay. It's just stuff. I can enjoy it. I can have fun with it, but there's no life. It doesn't bring life, right? So this is why this story that happened 2,000 years ago of this resurrection of this 33-year-old guy in this backwater town that seems so insignificant, it either changes our life or it doesn't. And we have to figure that out. So again, as a church, we've been going through the book of Romans. And I want to just conclude our time together in God's word this morning, looking at Romans chapter 15. Because again, for the last three months, we as a church family, and if this is your first Sunday here, awesome. Don't feel like you're not going to understand this part. I'll make sure you understand it. <laughs> right? The book of Romans in your New Testament is we as Christians believe this to be the most theologically rich book in the entire New Testament. New Testament is that second half of your Bible, kind of when Jesus comes and then the starting up of the early church. And there's this apostle, this man named Paul, who was going around all the known world at the time, starting these churches. And he wasn't very popular. And he wasn't popular because he was actually one of those religious Jewish elite leaders before. He had the top billing of any Jewish leader. Paul could go to anyone's home in Israel and be welcomed at the head of the table. 
He could go to any conference and be the keynote speaker. He was the man. He was the guy. But then he meets the resurrected Jesus. And instead of going, okay, well, I still want to be the man. I still want to go to these conferences and speak at this event and be invited here and get all the, go to all the good parties and still have the prestige and the wealth that comes from my position. Everything in his life changed. And he writes the richest theological letter that we have explaining to the city of Rome, the Christians in Rome, who at the time were the most sophisticated people on the planet. And we have to remember that because how many of you think you are the most sophisticated person on the planet? (laughs) You do. Okay, let's be honest, okay? Or maybe not you individually, but we as a culture today, okay? Like, we can joke about this, but we all think we're pretty smart. And we have our stuff pretty together, right? And we can look at the Bible as like, oh, this old ancient thing that's completely irrelevant. No, no, he's writing to the most sophisticated human city. It's the very first human settlement to reach a million people in population, It's the biggest army that literally took over the known world. Okay? It's the superpower of superpowers of this day. And so this man, this deeply educated man, writes to this deeply educated city. You see how this still fits today? (laughs) On how we, the church, are still speaking into our cities and into our communities and into our workplaces, and he writes this theology to get our brain around Jesus, of who God is, what Jesus has done by his death and his resurrection, what it means for the church. And that's the first 11 chapters. He plays with the head. And then in the end of it, the last five chapters, he talks about how this should change your life. So let me read from Romans 15, verses 14 to 22. Here, Paul concludes his letter. Again, he was this great religious leader that had everything that his religious system made available to him. And he gives it all away. It completely changes his life. He says this, verse 14 says, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness. Again, he's writing to the church. You're, you're filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. He, <laughs> I love Paul. Paul's kind of one of these spiritual father type people that kind of like speaks, you know, and it sounds really nice and encouraging. But what he's actually doing is he's actually punching us in the throat. <laughs> in a nice way. <laughs> it's like... You should be competent. I'm assuming you're good. I'm assuming you have a good head on your shoulder. I'm assuming you understand all of this stuff about Jesus. He goes, yeah, but I've, had, I've written quite, sorry, continues here, yet, verse 15, yet I've written you quite boldly. And if you have a paper Bible, underword the word boldly. I had to write quite boldly on some points to remind you of them again. Why do I need to be reminded about the grace of God? Oh, because I think it's all about me. 
and how smart I am and how educated I am and my leadership capabilities and what conference I go to and what book I read and I, ah, me, 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 me. Right? And continue, because the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. And Paul left his people where he's an elite and goes to people who don't accept him. An elite going to where he is despised. Right? Talking about Jesus. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Again, not different cultures, not different religions, but God stepping into humanity and drawing everyone in to sanctify them, to make them holy, to gift them with the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, therefore, I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done by the power of signs and wonders through the power of the spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to uh, Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. If one thing Easter should remind us of as followers of Jesus, those who have put our faith in Jesus, those of us who believe in this resurrection, we believe that Jesus is alive. So let's live in the church like the church is alive. Right, the call of the church is not to be a tomb. I tell this all the time. When, I, when people come and they visit our church for the first time, and they might come from a little bit more of a traditional background, they, it was awfully loud. That's usually the first response I get from visitors here. It was awfully loud. And I go, I know. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to turn it up. No, I'm not. But... Because I'm here to party. Now I get it. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to weep and all of those things. But we're speaking into a culture that is looking for life in death. We're speaking to a culture that is turning to things that is literally killing them. And they think it's going to bring life. And so when we invite them here, what do I want them to experience? Death? Life, thank you. <laughs> One person listening. Awesome. <laughs> Life. Jesus is alive. So we live as the church, like men, women, boys, and girls that are alive in the same power. Like in verse 15 of chapter uh, 15 of Romans, right, where Paul says, well, I had to be bold about some points. Well, what are the points? Quick summary to wrap up. I told Paul I was going to speak for 20 minutes. I lied. Sorry. Okay. But here are the three things that Paul, the points he's been making is that righteousness is by faith. And what does righteousness mean? What makes us right with God? It's not keeping all of the rules and the regulations and the traditions. It's Jesus' death and resurrection that makes us right with God. When Paul taught the Romans that if you believe in your heart 
that Jesus rose from the dead, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you're made right with God. That's this righteousness that he has to remind us all about. He also reminds us the other points he had to make. He talks about the empowerment of the spirit. You don't need to do it on your own. You really don't. At work, in your relationships, at school, God is with you and wants to empower you. You don't need to live life like I'm always going to have this sin. I'm always going to have this shortcoming. I'm always, I'm always, I'm always. There's a power of God's presence with us that we have to learn to lean in a little bit more. And then the other point that Paul makes in this letter is he talks about the new people of God. Just like how Paul is an elite who gets sent out to people who hate him, the church used to be the elite. And now we live in a culture today where we're not the elite anymore. And I think that's a great posture to be because it forces us to go and hang out with people that as the elite, we wouldn't hang out with them. As the elite, we wouldn't even talk to them. As the elite, we would say, thank you, Lord, for not making me like them. So God lowers us a little bit. I love a little bit of spiritual humility. And then we're empowered to be the new people of God into a culture to welcome other people into the kingdom of God. You see, that message is exciting and not boring and definitely not dead. So what's your view of the resurrection this morning? Maybe you're here today and it's just a story and that's okay. If it is, I would encourage you to keep coming on a journey with us. Over the next several months now, we're going to go through the continuing this journey as a church of what does it mean to live a whole life as human beings in this world today. And we're going to look at that from a Christian perspective. What's my view of how I live and how I act and how I behave? What are all my the views of the world and what does it mean to be a Christian in this world? I encourage you to journey along with us. But for those of us who believe that the resurrection is the most important thing to happen that we celebrate and we rejoice that Jesus is alive. My question for us today, when we leave here, are we going to act like we're alive? Or are we going to go back into the tomb looking for Jesus there? And he's not there because he's alive. So let's pray together. Father God, I praise you and thank you for the resurrection of Jesus that continues to change lives. I thank you for so many people in our church that you are using, Father, to be a blessing everywhere that they go. God, I thank you for the way that you are working within your church, our church, churches across our city, churches across the nation, and the church around the world, bringing this message that the resurrection matters because there is forgiveness of sin available to all people. And maybe just with this posture of prayer, maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you've never accepted that forgiveness of sin. You can do that right where you are by just simply in your own heart and your own mind quietly just say, Father, forgive me, a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died. Thank you that Jesus rose from the dead. Thank you that my sin can be completely forgiven. 
If you pray that this morning, church online, a little pop-up shows up. Please click that. Let us know. If you pray that way in the church here today, come and tell me in the cafe afterwards. I'd love to rejoice with you. But for all of us this Easter season, let's not just treat this like a one-off holiday. Let's not even just treat it like an every Sunday thing. But let's treat the resurrection of Jesus like an everyday thing that matters. Because Jesus is alive. So the church is alive. Let's continue to worship.